Father, we, we love all the scripture, but there are some verses we just keep going back to and reminding ourselves of. And one of those is uh, in that little somewhat obscure book that we don't open a lot, but man, what a nugget is in Lamentations 3 when we read that uh, this I recall to mind and am encouraged that the Lord's mercies are new every morning and his compassions are new every morning. We are so thankful, Lord, for, for your faithfulness, just faithfulness, how faithful you are to us. We, uh, we have each day a certain amount of issues on our table and um, stuff we've got to handle, and sometimes we get our, li our list checked off. More often than not, we don't get through the list even if we do, somehow five or ten other things get on that list. There's always stuff to handle that day, and then before we know it, the day is gone. We start uh, nodding off in front of the TV, and uh, before you know it, we're out. Yeah, we, just, we just can't go anymore. We're fatigued. But there's still stuff to deal with, but we have to sleep. We're grateful that you don't. And then when we get up, Lord, there it is, new mercy, new grace. We look back over our lives, and we see your goodness, and we see your grace, and we see your loving kindness. Um, it's remarkable to us. And as grateful as we are for all of that grace, the fact is every morning when we get up, we can't live on past grace. We, we need an absolute fresh supply. And remarkably, you give it to us every day. Your mercies are new every morning. How grateful we are for that. When we, when, when we ponder that, it puts encouragement in our hearts. So we simply want to be grateful men tonight and say thank you. Thank you for what you've done this week with all the issues we face and the things that uh, concern us. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, there are things that, that come into our lives from time to time that threaten us and threaten uh, our ability to provide for our homes, our families. Uh, this is a dangerous world. But we thank you that you own this world. And you told us that we are not to fear. You handle things for us. And you give us strength to get through each day. You give us wisdom we didn't have. And you bring things to our mind that we had not thought of before. You just take care of things. In your infinite mercy, you keep providing for us on a daily basis. We thank you for the rain that we've had, how desperately we need it. We also thank you for sunshine, how much we enjoy it. 
You give us what we need, and then you give extra, Lord. It's just the kind of God you are. Uh, as we begin our study tonight, um, help us to focus. Help us to the distractions that we're dealing with, to put them aside. And the power of your word, may it penetrate our hearts and minds and once again, put courage in our souls, iron in our souls for what we're facing. Just the reminder that we're not alone, that you're with us, and that you're faithful. Just that alone gets us through. But there's so much more that you bring us. Teach us, equip us, is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we are continuing, and we're going to continue this till the end of this semester, our study on the path of life or the trail of life. There's a foundational verse to this study. It's been Psalm 1611. You will make known to me the path of life. Uh, I mentioned that the word trail is not in the Bible, but I really like the word trail. And when you talk, you see the word path in the Bible, you see the word way, W-A-Y. You see the word road. All of those um, are, are, are they're synonyms um, for a piece of ground between A and B that is well-traveled. It can be a path, it can be a way, it can be a road, it can be a trail. We're on the trail of life. We're on the path of life. How did you get a life? That's always fascinating to me. How did we even get a life? He gave us life. And he knew us before he made us. That helps me often as I deal with the stuff on my trail. As you deal with the stuff on your trail, I was thinking of something this week, and quite, some, quite frankly, something that I wish that wasn't in my life right now, but it's there, and you've got that stuff, right? We all do. But I was reminded that I was appointed by God to deal with this. It, it's not in my life um, for any other reason. I mean, you can take it any way you want, but uh, God's all over that, and he's all over my life, and he's all over my trail. At the very minimum, it was uh, God permitted it. Uh, I, I think God planned it because I think he has my whole trail, even before I'm born. I would base that on Psalm 139, 16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. When you were sperm and egg, that's unformed substance. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Staggering, staggering statement about our lives. Staggering. So often as men, we deal with the last thing we want. We do not want our lives to be without meaning. And when we sense that we're not leading meaningful lives, it's very hard on us and very frustrating. We want to feel that we have purpose. We want to feel that we're making a contribution. We want to feel in some way, shape, or form that our lives count. Uh, 
we're not going to be famous. We're not going to be celebrities. We're not going to be this or this. We're just guys going through life, but we want our lives to count. When you stop and think about the fact that a sovereign God brought you into existence, determined the moment of your conception, the moment of your birth, and has determined the moment of your death already, according to Hebrews 9, um, and that you can't die until the work that he has purposed for you to do is accomplished, you know what? That puts everything in perspective. Uh, are we always fruitful? Are we always productive? No, not always. Um, Washington State produces a lot of apples, a lot of apples. I can't remember who it was that I heard years ago talking about driving through Washington State in the dead of winter. And he was looking, he was at miles and miles and miles and miles of apple orchards. And he said the thing that struck him, he'd had, you know, eaten apples with the little stickers, Washington State apples, for years. And he's driving through these orchards, and he said those orchards looked absolutely, every one of those trees, thousands upon thousands, looked absolutely dead. They just looked dead, middle of winter. Uh, no green, no buds, no fruit, just looked dead as a doornail. And he said, but it struck him that as he was driving, that within a matter of months, those trees would absolutely come alive. Uh, most fruit trees do not bear 12 months, a mo 12 months out of the year, do they? At times, and it's true in Washington State with the apple trees, that it, it, for lack of a better term, uh, they, they're dormant. Uh, not that they're not alive, but all the action is underneath the surface. You can't see it externally, but there's something going on deep. And in our lives, when we feel like we're stalled, when we feel like we have been set back, when we feel like um, we are not, you, you know, oftentimes you'll kind of appraise your life where you are, and you thought at this age of life you'd be down this far up here, but in actuality, you're not this far down the road up here, you're back here, down here. Ever felt that way? God works through those times. He, he's doing a, a, a work under the surface. See, this is our trail. Our trail is not always just progress. Our, our trail with the Lord as we follow him is not always advancement. Um, we get in trouble. We get in difficult spots. We find ourselves... Uh, we find ourselves in caves. We find ourselves in a pit. We find ourselves, uh, you can use all kinds of uh, metaphors, in a ditch. Uh, some of our own making, uh, some through the circumstances of life and things that we never see coming that come upon us. We didn't bring upon ourselves. All these things are part of the trail, and all of these things are tools which God uses to develop us in our path, in our walk, in our maturity, along the trail as we follow Christ. Um, what I want to do tonight is I, we're, gonna, we're on this trail, and we're going to be on it until we finish this semester. So I'm going to take a little bit of time with, with a great psalm, which is Psalm 107. And we're not going to cover it tonight 
kind of what I'm going to do tonight is introduce it. And we'll deal with it next week, and we may even deal with it the next week. There's so much stuff in here. The, so if you have your Bible, turn with me to Psalm 107. Before I read Psalm 107, you know how I am. I can't read the passage without going to another passage first. So keep your finger in Psalm 107, and then turn to Psalm 50, verse 15, because in my mind, Psalm 50, verse 15, in just one line or two, introduces the subject matter of Psalm 107, if that makes any sense. In Psalm 50, verse 15, we read these words. God says, call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. If I were to title this tonight, and I am going to title it, just for the talk, I would call it Rescues Along the Trail. You look back over your life. How many times has God rescued you? Every guy in this room. Uh, well, he, he rescues us every time. And we find, we're always finding ourselves in a, how the heck did I get into this? What the heck just happened here? <laughs> How many times has that happened to us? And it's, it's life. Life is not unimpeded progress. Life is full of all kinds of obstacles. And you get blindsided. And you get hit from behind. And you get sucker punched. And you fall into a ditch that you didn't see. And this and this and this. And we find ourselves in situations. And unless you're rescued, you're in trouble. Psalm 107 is all about the rescues that God faithfully and perpetually provides for his people. He is a rescuing God. He is a savior. Um, Now, C.H. Spurgeon called... Psalm 50, 15, he called it the Robinson Crusoe psalm, the Robinson Crusoe verse. Now you say, well, I didn't read that book, but I saw the Tom Hanks movie. (laughs) Not the same. Well, no, a guy got shipwrecked and he's on an island. Yeah, not the same. Not the same at all. If you read, if you want a good read sometime, uh, read Robinson Crusoe. Written by Daniel Defoe, what, in the 1700s? Um, Robinson Crusoe, the story is, young man raised in a Christian home, godly father who followed Christ, taught his son the word of God, but as so often happens, the boy got into his youth, wanted nothing to do with that. Didn't want to hear about God anymore. Didn't want to go the way his dad advised him to go in terms of making choices for his future career. So what does he do? He bolts from under his father's authority. He's going to go his own way. Young guy, full of vim, full of vigor, uh, full of rebellion. We've all been there. Uh, And whatever his dad says, he's going to do the opposite. 
and he, 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 he's going to get on a ship and go out to sea. So he does and starts living like hell and, you know, doing the whole sailor thing and all that. And, well, he's got a dad at home praying for him. Well, you're, you're toast. You've got a father praying for you, and you're trying to live a rebellious life. You're going to have a heck of a time. Um, nothing like a praying father. Nothing like a praying mother. Nothing like a praying grandma, grandpa. You just pray them into the kingdom. You know, you pray, God does the work. He, he just, well, he has his ways. He has his way. John Newton was one of those. Um, Robinson Crusoe, a fictional character, he was one of those. Uh, he shipwrecks. Does he pay attention to God? No. No, somehow he got out of it and he survived it. He gets back on the ship, starts living. In fact, the captain didn't even want to take him, and somehow he convinced the captain because the captain knew of his family situation. Somehow he, 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 he smoothed the captain, got back on the ship, da, 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 da. Well, eventually God says enough, and he shipwrecks, and now he winds up on the island. And it's a complete loss. And at his moment of absolute and utter desperation, he remembered this verse from Psalm 50 from his um, biblical training as a boy. He remembered, call on me in the day of trouble. I mean, he's in trouble like he's never seen. I will rescue you and you will honor me. Robinson Crusoe, the story, honors God. It honors God. Now, when he called on God, did God rescue him? Yeah. Did God get him immediately off that island? No, he was there for years. For years he was there. But as he was there on that island, eventually he was, he was taken off the island. But while he was on the island, you know what God did? God, God did rescue him by giving him the provisions, and God would bring along things that would sweep up on the beach, things that he needed just in the nick of time. You see, what that book shows us is that God not only saves us from our sin, but what he does is he saves us and rescues us through the daily and weekly and monthly challenges and um, disruptions and setbacks of our lives. You, you see, that's called providence. How did he live on an island where basically he had fruit. Um, every once in a while, he'd be able to, to fashion a weapon and kill an animal. But how in the world do you survive with what you need for years and years and years? You, you survive through the providence of God. The providence of God and the provision of God come from the same root. The providence of God is God's faithful provision for us as we are along the trail. And when we hit those spots where we are completely out of options and completely out of cash and completely out of health and completely out of help and assistance, he rescues us. And when he rescues you, you honor him because you know, you know who did it. You know, it's hands down, you know who did it, don't you? So, so as we get into Psalm 107, I, I, 
I, what I'd like to do is, I'd like to go back over just quickly the, the, the doctrine of the providence of God. And you may say, Steve, you talk about the providence of God all the time. Yeah, I know. I talk about the sovereignty of God, and I talk about the providence of God. Why am I always talking about it? Because I see it on every page of the Bible. And I'm going to tell you something. I think in most evangelical churches, I grew up ignorant of the providence of God. I was raised in church three times a week, a Bible-teaching church. Uh, I think most evangelical churches shy away from the sovereignty of God. If we're going to err, we're going to err on the side of human freedom. Now, you got, in the Bible, you've got the sovereignty of God and you've got human freedom. You've got them both. But at least in my experience, in most evangelical ch churches, we swing to human freedom. We swing that we need to make right choices and we need wisdom. That's in the Bible. I want wisdom. I want God to help me make right choices. But sometimes I don't make right choices. In fact, often I don't make right choices. I'll know a principle. I violate it before, and I say to myself, man, I'll never do that again. And then what do I do? I make the stupid choice again. And so do you. And then I find myself in a ditch or in a pit of some type of my own making, and what do I need? Oh, I need to be rescued. You see, you've got the sovereignty, the absolute control of God, and the providence of God. The sovereignty of God is his absolute control. He made the world. He spoke it into existence. Uh, quite frankly, everybody in the world trusts in God. He is the trust to the ends of the earth. It says there in Psalm 90-something, I can't remember. He's the trust to the ends of the earth. Everybody is trusting in God. We just don't acknowledge him as God. You're just trusting that eventually the drought will end and the water will come. Well, then you're trusting in God because, because he owns it, he runs it, he invented it. The whole thing. He spoke the worlds into existence. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. So, so the providence of God, and, and, and once again, to me, as you go through life and you hit these hard places in life, and you are, uh, you've got different trials and different adversities, and you've got different situations on your plate, and all these different things that we deal with from time to time. Count it joy when you encounter various trials. All of us have trials, but they're different kinds of trials. Everybody in this room. Everybody looks together, everybody looks fine. But if we were to open up, everybody just got real transparent, you'd be shocked at the trials guys are going through. Different than your trials. We all need to be rescued, every single one of us. So you see, the thing that keeps you going, the, key, the thing that keeps you steady, the thing that keeps you anchored, and the thing that keeps you from just absolutely falling apart that I know of is the sovereignty and providence of God. I only find that in the Scriptures. So what do we mean when we say the providence of God? Question, what do you mean when you say the providence of God? Years ago, I was preaching at a Bible church in the Metroplex, and I did a session on the sovereignty and providence of God. Maybe a year later, I'm at a restaurant, see the pastor with some of the staff guys. Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. You know, just said hi for a couple minutes. They walk off. See you later. Uh, I looked up, and the pastor was walking back. And he said, hey, Steve, I want to ask you something. Tell me again about the providence of God. 
What does that mean? This guy's a pastor in a Bible church. You see my point? Run that providence stuff by me one more time. Not his fault. He just hadn't been taught. Or he hadn't been doing much study. Now, I've quoted to you from the Heidelberg Catechism before. I want to quote it again. You say, the Heidelberg Catechism, what is that? It sounds like we're going liberal here. No. No. <laughs> Let me explain the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, you know, if you study history, you see the different, you know, periods of time, if you will, read, you know, those big books by Will Durant that everybody has on their shelves but never reads. If, if you look at the, the seasons of history, you got Middle Ages, you got the Enlightenment, you got the Renaissance, you got all that, but then you got, in there you got Reformation. What's the Reformation? The Reformation shook the whole world. God used a Roman Catholic monk and scholar by the name of Martin Luther. And what happened, you know those big cathedrals when you go to Europe and you go around Rome and every other street, there's a massive, unbelievable cathedral. With the, you just can't even take it in. Well, someone had to, how do you pay for that stuff? Well, in order to pay for it, they came up, there was a guy named Tetzel who came up with this um, uh, church bond program, for lack of a better term, <laughs> called uh, indulgences. And what they would tell these people is that if you write a $1,000 check or a $500 check or a $10,000 check, the more money you donate, the quicker your relatives who are in purgatory will get out. Now, that's what they were told. Now, you've got a couple of problems there. This is Roman Catholicism. And you've got some serious problems because the Word of God is not the authority. The authority is the Pope and the authority is tradition. And so, in Roman Catholicism, new doctrines are added as, as the years go by. Now, they had this doctrine of purgatory. Purgatory is not in the Bible. Purgatory is limbo between heaven and hell. You can't find that. Jesus never talked about three trails, did he? Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the gate that leads to life. But we got a four-lane highway that goes to purgatory. <laughs> And if you screwed up, you can work it off. It might take you 12,000 years, but eventually, you know, you do enough works. And see, there's the real root. Martin Luther, who was a Roman Catholic monk, could not find peace with God. He would do all these works and all these works, confess sin till he would drop, really drop to the floor in sheer exhaustion. Sleep it off, he'd wake up, and he didn't have peace with God because he knew he, somewhere he forgot sin to confess. He lived in absolute torment until he was studying the scriptures and saw in Galatians and saw in Romans that the just shall live by faith. That changed his whole life. The Spirit of God illuminated that. He realized that the just shall live by faith. Faith in what? In the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus paid it all. Jesus gave the ultimate sacrifice. He who knew no sin became sin. Jesus took the wrath of God that should have come upon you and should have come upon me for our sin, and Jesus took all of that and put it on him, and he who was perfect, the Lamb of God, without sin, he took our sin upon him, and he paid for it with his blood. That's the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered you as of first importance. 
most important thing in the world, that Christ died for our sins. And when he realized that, it set him free. He began to preach it. He began to declare it. And he also was very upset when he saw what Tetzel was doing. And he wrote out, he wrote out a document, pounded it on the door of a castle, and it changed the whole world and started the Reformation because Reformation means reform. He was going to reform the church and get it pure back to the Bible. Uh, he discovered that we are, uh, really Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works. And by the way, when, when the Reformation really started picking up speed, and it picked up speed fast because in the sovereignty and providence of God, there was another guy named Gutenberg, and he was tinkering with this thing in his shop, and he finally got it to work, and it was called a printing press. And in the sovereignty of God, when Luther discovered the gospel all over again and began to write, suddenly they were turning those suckers out like crazy on a printing press that didn't exist just years before, and it just flooded. And there was a revival, and there was a reformation, and God changed the world. Is that not wild? What a coincidence. <laughs> no, no coincidence. And then, and then the Roman Catholic Church got all their guys together, uh, and a guy named Robert Bellarmine, and uh, they came up with an answer to Luther in this gospel of grace at the Council of Trent. The Roman Catholic Church has never repu repudiated the Council of Trent, which basically said, we, and I'm paraphrasing, we affirm, we affirm that the gospel teaches that we are forgiven by our works. It's a paraphrase. So it's cut and dried. It's black and white. We are not justified by works. We're justified by grace. Amazing grace, is it not? See, this is why I decided tonight I'm going to give an introduction to Psalm 107 because I'm not even sure I'm going to touch 107. <laughs> but I'm going to get there. But it's an introduction. So, you see... It's fascinating to me that, uh, that what happened with the Reformation and what happened in the, in the sovereignty and providence of God, that at a certain season in the history of the world, God shed light to a motivated scholar who really wanted to know God, who was immensely gifted, and the gospel was opened up. And what happened was, as he printed his scriptural studies, and it spread, it spread, it spread as it did to many cities, to Heidelberg. And these men who had been Roman Catholics were converted, and then they wanted their um, children to know the truth. And so what they did, they came up with a format to teach biblical truth to children in a question and answer format. That's what the Heidelberg Catechism is. And they will answer, they'll have a question, and then they'll give an answer, and then there will be all kinds of scriptural references to back up the answer. You follow me so far? That's why I want to quote from the Heidelberg Catechism when it comes to question 27 and question 28. This was put together in 1543. Some of you guys are in high school, 1543. Okay, so here's question 27. What do you understand by the providence of God, and how would you answer that? Here's their answer. God's providence is his almighty 
and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures. The guy at work who's threatening you. See, you, you got to apply this. The guy who wrote a bad review on your last uh, review. You see, see, that puts it in perspective. He still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and so governs them that leaf and blade. In your yard, do you have a leaf? Do you have a blade? You've got quite a few of them. So that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Do you know how many Christians believe that their lives are governed by chance or by other people? That's absolute heresy. It's all under the control. Sovereignty and providence, sovereignty is, is God's absolute control. Uh, providence is that which he created, he sustains. He keeps it going. You're on a desert island for how many years? He'll keep you going by his providence, by his provision. You're on the trail of life. You hit a pit. You get stabbed in the back. You have this, this. Somehow he's going to keep you going because he's got a moment in the future on the trail. When you finished your work, that's your appointed time to die. But it's his job to keep you going until you get to that point. It's called providence. Okay. And then they give uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten verses, and that's not all of them, to substantiate that answer. You can look this up online. Here's question 28. So what does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? How does that benefit me? All right, watch this. So that we can be patient in adversity. Well, I don't need any help on that. I got that wired. Yeah, all right. See, this helps me. This truth helps me to be patient in my, in my what? Adversity. What I wish was not in my life. Knowing that God is sovereign and is providentially working and governs my whole life and every event of my life, that helps me to be Patient. The truth of God. If I don't have that truth, how can I be? I mean, really, how can I be patient? I'm going to do everything I can do. Now, we still do what we legitimately can do, but sometimes we get so frustrated, we start doing things that are illegitimate. You don't have to do that. Not if you're under the providence of God. Okay, I'm going to shut up and read this. We can be patient in adversity. Watch this. Thankful in prosperity. Absolutely, because it comes from him. And with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall ever separate us from his love. Romans 8. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. I love that. Uh, that's Acts 17. In him we live and move and exist. You can't breathe without him. 
You can't, you can't move your fingers without it. As someone who has Lou Gehrig's disease, as someone who's been afflicted with a stroke, whose mind is still there and sharp. I was reading about a young man uh, today who was in a coma. They thought he was brain dead for 14 years. He said he heard everything that was being said, and he was, he, what happened was his mind, everything else went, but his mind was fine, and then remarkably, he came back. He could hear the doctors telling his parents they needed to let him go, just finish it. Is that not wild? In him we live and move. Okay. And once again, there are at least 10, 12 verses, and I'm just looking here. Now, see, this is the providence of God. This is the provision of God. And let me tell you how this relates to Psalm 107. Uh, Psalm 107 basically is going to talk about when we get ourselves in trouble. And see, when we get ourselves in trouble, and I mean, it's trouble like you've never been in, what do you do? You cry out to God. That's the only thing that makes sense. But here's what's interesting. When life is going pretty well and pretty steady and it's pretty level and, you know, you really don't have, I mean, you just have normal trouble, but not excessive trouble. When you're just puttering along and things going normal, you know why it's normal? The providence of God. If your mind's working, if you're having some success in your work, if there's favor in your family, if, if whatever's positive there, what's that? That's the providence of God. He's fueling it. He's providing it. He's sustaining. See, it's all providence. It's all provision. Okay. Now, immediately when you talk about the sovereignty and providence of God, somebody says, wait a minute, you're saying God's in complete control? And God sustains the world? Yes. Well, what about evil? Legitimate question. Well, why is there evil in the world? And there is evil in the world. And the question is, yeah, there's all kinds of evil, and if God's in absolute control, then what about evil? And how does that, how does that work together? Well, let's say this. First of all, let's say this. Because of God's character, Isaiah 6 I saw the Lord in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord high and mighty lifted up. The, the train of his robe filled the temple and seraphim stood around him. Six seraphim each, having, seraphim each having six wings. With two they flew, with two they covered their face. And with two they covered their feet. And they cried out one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The, the, the superior, supreme attribute of God is his holiness. Holiness is absolute moral purity. Absolute moral purity. Therefore, we deduce from that. By the way, God cannot lie, can he? The Bible says, Titus, what is it, 1, 2? God cannot lie. It doesn't say he doesn't lie. It says he can't lie. Why can't he lie? Because it was absolute moral purity. Therefore, God is never the author of evil. However, evil is another blade on his Swiss army knife. He's got all kinds of little tools on his Swiss army knife that he uses for the good of his people and the glory of his name. One of those is evil. Joseph said to his brothers after being sold into slavery and they ruined his life, he said to his brothers in Genesis 50, you intended it for what? Evil, God intended it for good. There you go. Right there, 
evil in Joseph's life. Could God have stopped the evil? Absolutely. Did he stop the evil? No. Why? Because he had a purpose further down the line that was not only for the good of Joseph, but for the good of his brothers and for the good of the whole nation and for the whole world, quite frankly. Evil is a tool that God uses. But sometimes we get all hung up. Why is there so much evil in the world? The real question is, why is there not more evil in the world? So the philosophers would call this the problem of evil. Steve Lawson, a friend of mine, has written a book called The Problem of Good. That's a great title. The Problem of Good. <laughs> when the world seems fine without God. Uh, I'll quote Steve here. He says, The ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit who strives with unconverted men in order to restrain them from being as sinful as their immoral imaginations would lead them to be. This is a general restraint upon their lives, impeding them from being fully engrossed in their sin. Isn't that wild? The, the amazing thing is not that there's evil, it's not that there's more evil. Why isn't there more evil? Well, because of the providence of God. He restrains sin. He restrains sin. When Abraham twice lied to two different kings about his wife Sarah, who was beautiful, and he said, she's my sister. No, his sister is a wife. And one of these kings, you know, they take her in, and you know, you know, that whole harem thing, and you know, before anything happened, this one king, God says to this one king, I kept you from sinning. I restrained you. Charles Spurgeon said this. Now watch this. I tell you again. See, because here's what happens sometimes. In the Christian life, it's hard and we have afflictions. And then we look around and we see people that don't know Christ and everything seems to go their way. I mean, they got money. They got health. They're, they, they, you know, they got private jets. They're flying around here. They're breaking the law right and left. They cover their tail. The media covers their tail. All of this. You know, I'm just speaking randomly here. You know what I'm saying? Everything they touch, I mean, and they break, every time they turn around, they, they committed a felony and they never get, I mean, a Teflon. Not, I mean, it just, what, what's, what's the deal? What's the deal? Every time I turn around, I'm following Christ, I get slammed. Spurgeon said this, I tell you again, if there be any pathway in which there be not fire, tremble. But if your lot be hard, thank God for it. If your sufferings be great, bless the Lord for them. And if the difficulties in your pathway be many, surmount them by faith, but let them not cast you down. Why? Because God is providentially working. Now, is that my first response when I got troubles? No. But see, that fits James 1. Count it joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And again, we said this before in here. To count it as joy does not mean you feel it as joy. You don't experience as joy. So I was up early with Mary this morning, getting her in for a test, because we've had some concern. She, she's, she only weighs 100 pounds, and she, since October, has lost 10% of her body weight. Now, that's not a good sign. 
and we're checking things out. Da, 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 da. So we got this final test today. And, you know, you look stuff off of the Internet, and, you know, you start freaking out and sweating and all this, and you know how that goes. So we're in there, da-da-da, you know, doctor comes out. She's, you know, back to herself. And he, he comes in, and he goes, well, nothing life-threatening. Nothing cataclysmic here. We went in, we saw this, we saw this, did a biopsy of that. Uh, no, nothing that can't be fixed. This is either that or that or that, and medication will handle it. So what were we doing? Thank you, Lord. We bless you, Lord. We thank you. All day long, we've been thanking God and praising God. Now, let me ask you this. What if he had walked in and he said, I'm sorry to tell you that you've got a mass here, or a blockage here, and it looks like, it's, I don't know yet, but it looks like it's cancer. I'm just telling you, I wouldn't have the same response. See, we get our feet knocked out from under us by life. And we don't see it coming. And that could have happened. It, it very well could have happened. And one day it may happen to her or to me in the providence of God. But on this day, God was gracious and we got good news. But if the news is bad, see, James says, count it as joy when you encounter various trials. Now, that doesn't mean, as we were doing, oh, thank you, oh, this is great, oh, this is, I can't, this is so good, this is so good. Now, if it had been the reverse, God doesn't expect you to say, oh, this is so good, oh, this is incredible. We get to deal with cancer. Oh, this is going to deepen our faith. No, 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 I, no, I'm not going there. Not with emotion, I'm not. Now, what happens is we get knocked down, and then what happens after the initial shock, and it may take you a little bit of time, but after some jolt, some shock like this, you know what happens? You start getting your feet under you, and you go, no, wait a minute, Lord, hold on. This could not have occurred in my life without your providential hand. My life is in your hands. And see, so you start thinking biblically, and what it does is start settling you down. And what happens is you begin to say, you know, Lord, you've got something here for me that I can't see. I really don't want this, but you're in charge of my life. Every cell of my body you're in charge of. You're sovereign over. So see, then you take a step back, and in that vein, you count it as joy. Don't necessarily feel it. You count it. You consider it as joy when you encounter various trials, knowing, knowing what's going on here, that the testing of your faith. Oh, my faith is being tested. Yeah. See, in adversity, when adversity happens in our lives, yeah, there's, there are several, several root causes. Number one, uh, uh, your faith is being tested. God's going to deepen you. He's going to build your faith, okay? But it scares the tar out of you. Here's another reason. Uh, you're in sin as a believer. You've gotten off in the sin, and you shouldn't be there. So God will discipline you, Hebrews chapter 12. And he'll bring adversity into your life. If you've never been, Hebrews says, if you've never been disciplined by God, you're probably not a, a child of God. Every, every son that belongs to him, he disciplines. Every son. After you're a Christian. Uh, and uh, in Hebrews it says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. I'd I, I tell you amen to that. But to those who have been trained by it, trained by it, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So you see, I get off, he's going to discipline me my, like my dad used to give me a few whacks on the rear end. Hey, don't do that anymore. Get over here. Obey me. Okay. The Lord does that. Here's another reason why you might have adversity. is because you've been very fruitful in the kingdom of God. And you say, excuse me? 
Yeah, you heard me right. You've been fruitful in the kingdom of God, therefore you're going through adversity. Well, how does that work? That's John 15. Every branch in me that bears fruit, I cut back in order that it may bear more fruit. So I think I've told you about my one rose bush that I take care of. The others are neglected. But I have this one rose bush down by the garage, and it throws out roses every year. And, um, and when it throws out roses, what I do is I cut that sucker back. I mean, I cut it. And if that rose bush had emotions and feelings and could talk, it would say, what the heck are you? Hey, hey, knock that off, man. What are you doing? I mean, at least give me anesthesia. Why are you cutting on me? Well, I want, hey, I'm pruning you, man. I want roses. Didn't I give you roses? Oh, it was unbelievable. Well, why are you cutting on me? I want more roses. That's what God does with us. Now, by the way, well, how do I tell the difference? If you're in sin, the conviction of the Holy Spirit will be all over you. You'll know it. Don't doubt it. I haven't fallen asleep. I'm just <laughs> seeing how close I am to Psalm 107. <laughs> Let's go to Psalm 107. Now, what you've got in Psalm 107, again, what's the theme? Rescues along the trail. Call on me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you, and you will honor me. Psalm 107 starts, <laughs> actually, Psalm 105, 106, and 107 start the same way. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. What happens when we find ourselves in trouble? What happens when we find ourselves in afflictions? What, what happens when we find ourselves our reputation's being ruined. What happens when any kind of various trial hits us? The first thing we ask is, why? Why, why Lord? Why is this happening to me? And then we begin to struggle with the goodness of God, don't we? The goodness of God. Now, this starts off with, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And he is good. Psalm 119.68, the Lord is good and does good. Yes, he does. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Or some translations say his loving kindness, his love is steadfast. It's always there. Always, always, continually there. Throughout your whole trail, the love of God, the faithfulness of God. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. The redeemed of the Lord are those who have been, who, who live not under, <laughs> you know, there's two kinds of grace. There's amazing grace, the grace which saves us and calls us out of our sin, Ephesians 2, 8, all of Ephesians 2, actually. But that's saving grace. But all people, unbelievers, have the grace of God. It's called common grace. The, the, the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike, Matthew 5, 45 says. Even before we knew Christ, we were recipients of his grace. 
Even the most vocal atheists are recipients of his grace that they can read with comprehension, that they can write, that they have food to eat, that they can take vacations, that they can go enjoy a swim or uh, a sailboat ride. Or that's, the, that's the common goodness and grace that they turn the tap and water comes out, that they have hot water in their baths. That's just the common goodness and grace of Almighty God to all people. Okay? But there is elective grace where we're chosen in him. Okay. Uh, that means we're redeemed, that Jesus has called us to himself. He has paid the price, pulled us to himself. We love him because he first loved us. Okay, you, you getting this? We're the redeemed from the hand of the adversary. Now, by the way, historically, Psalm 107 and 105 and 106, it's speaking about, you remember when they went into Babylonian captivity for 70 years? You remember Daniel and his three buddies? They're going in for 70 years, but then the captivity was over, and they're going to come back now to Judah. This is the context, historically, of this psalm. However, the principles that are being taught in this psalm relate not just to those Jews who were coming back to Jerusalem. It relates to all believers who are all, we're all recipients of the goodness and grace of God. He is our rescuer. He is our savior. In, in Ephesians 2.8, when it says, for by grace you have been saved, you have been saved, the, the way that's constructed, the participle, it really is this way, for by grace you have been saved with continuing results. He saves us from our sin when he regenerates us and we ask him to come into our lives and be our savior. We say, Lord, be my savior, be my God, be my shepherd, I'm going to follow you. He changes us. He gets us off the broad road, puts us on the narrow road. It's a change of heart. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Now, here's what happens. We're redeemed. Uh, these people coming back in verse 3, who, whom he's redeemed from the hand of the adversary and gathered from the lands from the east and from the west and the north and the south, 98% of them went off to Babylon when Babylon invaded. But there were others who ran away. Somewhere in north, south, east, west. But when they were set free, he gathered them in. No matter where you went, he's gathering them all in. That's what he's done with us. He's gathered us all in. All right. Now, just as setting up the psalm for next week, and maybe the week after, the rest of the psalm deals, quite frankly, with four groups who are in trouble. It begins with verse 4. The individual who is in trouble in verse 4 is the lost traveler or the wandering traveler. All right? You see that? They wandered in the wilderness in a desert region. They're in a desert. They're in trouble. There is not a clear path. There is not a clear trail. They are lost in a desert. Oh, by the way, they did not find a way to an inhabited city, which is what they needed, because there they could get provisioned and cared for and food and water, but they were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. But they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them out of their distresses. 
Okay. That's one group. Now, go to verse, I'm just highlighting this. Go to verse 10. Some were those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chain. The second group that's in trouble are prisoners. We've got guys in this room who have been in prison and found the Lord. But we've all been prisoners. Number one, prisoners of sin, shackled by sin. Some of you are shackled by this circumstance or this circumstance or this circumstance. When you're a prisoner and you're in chains, you're in trouble. And what do you need? You need to be rescued. You need to be delivered. Interesting what happened in verse 13. These are in different circumstances, but they have the response that's the same as the previous group because it says this in verse 13. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. Huh. And he saved them out of all their distresses. He rescued them. Then you got a third group. Verse 17. These are some because of their rebellious way and because of their iniquities, iniquities were afflicted. These are people who are sick. We're all sick in our souls. We're afflicted in our souls with sin. But others are afflicted with different diseases, with different diseases of depression, with different, uh, you know, in, in, um, in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, Paul says to the church at Corinth that because they abused the Lord's table and were getting drunk at the Lord's table, he says, some of you are sick and some of you have died. Uh, the, the third group are in trouble because of, because of sickness. And what do they need? Oh, they need, they need to be healed. They need to be rescued from the sickness. Whatever it is that's in their lives. And so these are a whole different group. But what happened? Uh, verse 19, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of their distresses. He rescued them. You see it? He's rescuing these groups. Different circumstances. Then you've got verse 23. Those who are in the storms. Those who go, down, who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they've seen the works of the Lord. He spoke up, raised a stormy wind. Which hey, Have you ever been in a storm at sea? I did a cruise with Focus on the Family in the Caribbean, and they had a big ship. They had an amphitheater, four or 500 people. And I am teaching on the platform in the midst of a storm, and I'm literally teaching like this. And the whole balcony, the whole theater, we're all just. And then every once in a while you go, whoa. Now, that was a moderate storm. But see, there are some storms. Verse 26, they rose up to the heavens, they went down to the depths, their soul melted, melted away in misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man. They were at their wit's end. That's true of the sea. That's true in the storms of life sometimes. You're absolutely at your, your wit's end. You, and there is no immediate help. There is no, there's no help. Ah, but, verse 28, they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He brought them out of their distresses. You see that? He rescued them. So we're going to break this apart next week or two. Oh, by the way, beginning with verse 33 to 43, that deals with the times in your life when you will deal with a reversal of your fortunes. Reversal of fortunes. It's in there. It's happened to you already. It might happen to you again. And if you have a reversal of fortune, it's from the hand of God. But he rescues. He rescues. 
So what do we do because of his faithfulness? Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Because he brings good out of my trouble. Is it not Romans 8, 28? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Not that all things are good. All things are not good. But God causes, rape's not good, bankruptcy's not good, murder's not good, but God causes all things to, to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We'll get it all on the trail. But through it all, he's faithful. And through the very worst at some point, can't tell you when, can't tell you how, he will turn it for your good. So we praise him. Let's pray. I don't know if anybody else needs this, Lord, but I do. I need this reminder. Gosh, how I need it. So we give thanks to you that we know you, that we even know Jesus. We thank you, Lord, and we say this with all humility, that we were not born in a pagan land where we never heard the gospel. How, how, it's just remarkable. We've heard the gospel. You've opened our blind eyes. You've redeemed us. Uh, yeah, we've got our struggles. Yeah, we've got our stuff. But what a Savior. What a Savior. What a deliverer. Every guy in this room has been rescued multiple times. So whatever we're in now, whatever we're facing now, why would you not rescue us again? You will. Psalm 5015 is still alive. It's still true. Call on me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you. You will honor me, we give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.